So last year, this very week, we had a slab leak. You know what those are like, where the water just starts bubbling up from the ground and you don't know exactly where it's coming from? It wasn't the most convenient day to have a slab leak. I don't know if any day is the most convenient day, but it was one of my daughter's birthday parties. And so we were having all these kids come over and you got to turn off the water. So imagine saying, sorry, girls, no one gets to go to the bathroom today. Well, after that not-so-convenient day, soon after that, we had another slab leak. And then following that, we had to deal with a shower pan leak that is right over our kitchen. So, you know, water kind of trickling down into your kitchen. And before you know it, I had no kitchen, which is a sad story because I still have no kitchen. What I have is a garage kitchen, if you will. Um, it's got the refrigerator, it's got some shelves, and it's got a microwave. And it's not the prettiest setup. In fact, it's, you know, it's like a garage. You would expect a garage to be, especially like the worst part of the whole thing is the microwave. Because when you don't have a kitchen sink, you don't clean things like you once did. And when there's messes, you're just like, eh. Oh, well, right? Things bubble over on the microwave, and there's another layer of, of nastiness on the microwave. And this thing is just gross. Well, let's fast forward time, and let's pretend I am in my new awesome kitchen, because that's the upside to these leaks, right? Insurance covers some things, and things end up being better than they were. So there I am in my brand new kitchen, cooking, putting things in my brand new clean microwave, or skipping the microwave, right, and getting to my stove with my cast iron skillet that I miss so very much. And what I would be so excited to be cooking is I would be getting fresh vegetables that you wash under running water, because right now what it consists of is like, here kids, here's a vegetable, we're not gonna wash it. Here you go, You're nice. that's, that's our fresh vegetables. So I, I wash it under running water, I cut it with a utensil that I put into the dishwasher. I make it all crispy, pan fried, I put it on a glass plate with silver utensils and it would be amazing, right? There I am cooking in my new kitchen. But what if, in the midst of that, I'm like, yeah, this is great, this is good, but you know what? I miss my old garage kitchen. In fact, I miss it so much. You know, it was, it was easier. I had that microwave and I never had to clean it, right? I didn't care what it looked like. And the crumbs of all the food messes we were making, it was like, eh, whatever, right? I, I had no reason not to use paper bowls, paper, you know, paper whatever, just throw it all away, never had to empty the dishwasher. I had a bajillion excuses as to why not to eat healthy because there I am in my garage kitchen. So what you see me doing is I'm sneaking in to my cold garage, this old kitchen that I used to have. I'm getting a can of soup, I'm putting it in my paper bowl, and I'm sticking it in my nasty little microwave. <laughs> and you're looking at me going, what? Why, why would you do that? You have your brand new kitchen in there. It's got a new, clean microwave. And in your cupboards, you even have paper bowls, if that's what you really want. You have paper bowls in there, get your food, Go inside to your new kitchen. But what if I kept doing it? 
I just, I said, it just kept alluring me in there. And sometimes during mealtime, I'm supposed to be eating dinner with my family, and I just, I sneak out and I go and I sit in my old kitchen garage. I just, I miss it so much. And I, I, sometimes I don't even clean my new kitchen like I should because I just, I keep thinking of my old kitchen. You tell me that was ridiculous, right? It is time, girl, to cut the ties. Take your microwave and dump it in the trash. And take those old boards that came from your old closet that you are using as a kitchen countertop and be done with them, right? Throw them in the trash. It is time to move on. You have a new kitchen. It is time to be done with your old kitchen. Of course, that's a ridiculous scene to imagine. But it is a lot like what we do as new creations in Christ when we go back and we willingly dabble in the sins of our old life. We have been made new. We have brand new selves. And that should make us want to put to death whatever it is that would draw us back in. Of course, that's a lot like what we saw in the text that we studied this week. If you haven't turned there, turn there with me, Colossians chapter 3. Some things just make sense to be done with, and an old kitchen garage is certainly one of them, and so is our old self. So let's read the text, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. These concepts clearly continue from what you studied last week, what the passage was saying, that uh, we should set our minds on things above, right? We have, we have died with Christ. We have died to our old selves, to our sin, and we are supposed to set our minds on where we will one day be raised. And that should not only change our focus, where we are no longer focusing on the things that are, that are earthly, but it should change our actions. We should put to death whatever is earthly in us. So for the first blank on your outline, point number one, say no to your old nature. Say no to your old nature. But the question is, if we have already died to our old nature, why do we need to say no to it? Why does Paul have to say, put to death what is earthly in you? Because though sin doesn't have power over us, like Romans 6, 6 says, it says, we've died with Christ so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. So though we are no longer enslaved to sin, the thing is, of course, we still live in a sinful world and we still have sinful flesh. We are still affected by it. So no, we're not enslaved to it, but yes, we're affected by it. It's that paradigm we often see in scripture, that already not yet paradigm, where we have already die to our old selves, to our sin, and one day they will be fully gone, but not quite yet. 
And so we have this old nature that just, it sticks around. It's like this old nag that stays in our life that just keeps having these ideas about how we should do life. And so it's our new nature versus the old nag. And it's this battle that rages within us. If you want to turn with me to Galatians 5.17, or you can just jot it down, Galatians 5.17, it explains this battle. It's talking about how our new selves are trying to stay in step with the Holy Spirit. And it says, Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And as a Christian, what we want to do the most is we want to live for the Lord. And we can do that. We can have victory in that. We can have success in that. But it's not going to be without a fight. We're going to have to say no to ourselves, to our old selves, over and over and over again. Kind of like you have to say no to a toddler. I'm right in the thick of that, and boy, is it repetitive, you know. No, you can't touch that. No, no, don't climb on that. (laughs) Uh, No, don't put your finger in that. No, don't put that in your mouth. And it's just no, no, no all day long. And our old selves like it just about as much as a toddler likes it. But we got to keep saying it. We have to say no to our old selves. And Paul has some specific ways that he wants us. He wanted them and he wants us to say no to our old nature. In a sense, there's three different categories in this text that will help us develop these three subpoints. So we see the first one in verse 5. So he says, put to death what is earthly in you, and then here's this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These all refer to sexual sin in some way. It's a typical vice list that you would see in a lot of the different letters. In fact, a lot of these words would come up in different letters that Paul was writing. And so it seems that this is not a specific issue to the Colossians as if, you know, they are known for sexual sin. Rather, it seems this is a known thing in the culture, that the culture has all this kind of sexual immorality. And Christians, you need to be reminded that that's not how you're supposed to live, that you are supposed to live different than the world around you. And I know when we think of our culture, we think, yeah, it is a mess. We don't want to be like the culture around us. But really back then, when you were to look at descriptions of the ancient pagan culture, is often equally as shocking. And so then, just as much as now, we have got to see that we should live totally different than the world around us. And what that takes is a commitment to holiness. So letter A, write it down that way, commit to holiness. Because there is a current, it is a strong current that is moving, and the world is going one way, and especially in regards to anything related to sexual sin, it's, it's going one way, and it's everywhere, right? We see it everywhere, it's coming from every angle, and to have to not go with the world, and sometimes even go, you know, the exact opposite direction, it takes that resolve, that commitment to holiness, to not follow the way that the world is going And really, it takes more than just a commitment in that sense, but a commitment just to even think holy thoughts, right? I mean, we might be going the opposite direction of the culture in our actions, but it's easy to let our minds start drifting with the current, where we start looking and we're seeing, you know, all the messages, all the ways the world is going, and we start thinking, well, what what really is sexual immorality? 
You know, are these desires truly evil desires? I mean, what, what is evil desire? And so we need to even be committed to have our minds be holy. Let's look at these words, the list of them. We, we first see sexual immorality. So that's opposed to morality, what's moral. We have sexual impurity as opposed to purity. So to be holy in that, we need to agree with what God says is moral and pure. And that's not no sexuality, right? That's not no sex. Of course, those are God's designs. You got to start by admitting that, that those are God's good designs. And then thinking of what that means, I mean, on the most basic level, it's God created male and female who are meant to be married and to be intimate, and they are learning how to love and enjoy each other selflessly. I mean, just call it good married sex. And anything outside of that, any perversion of that, is sexual immorality and impurity. Then we have passion and evil desire, which is wanting anything outside of the boundaries of good married sex. And then you have covetousness, which is wanting something that's not yours to have, wanting something that God has not given you. And it's serious. He equates it to idolatry. So putting what you want over and above God. And then the passage gets even more serious. We see that in verse 6. It says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So God is angry with sin, with sexual sin in particular, but really with all sin. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But I'm sure your mind you know, thinks right away, well, I am not going to experience God's wrath, right? As a Christian, I will not experience God's wrath, so why does that motivate me? How does that make me want to live different? And there's many reasons for that, uh, but one is just we should care what God cares about. Picture this scene. There's this great, wonderful man, and he marries this gal, and, you know, she's not so great. But he has chosen to love her, and he cares for her. He takes care of her. I mean, he, he has been good to her. And she knows when she marries him, he's a good man, but she, and she knows that there's some things that he feels very strongly about, that there's some things that he actually despises. And so she goes into this marriage knowing that, knowing, of, yeah, of course I'm not going to do those things. I love him. He loves me. He's good to me. But eventually, she gets over that a little bit, and she's like, yeah, whatever, I'm just, I'm just going to do those things. I know he hates them, but I'm just going to do them. What would that say about her? Right? What would that say about their relationship, about their marriage? What would that say about her love and her respect that she should be having for her husband? And of course, the same is true with us and God. God has made very clear what he is against. He has made very clear what makes him angry. And that should mean something to us. Not to mention, he's a good God who has good rules, and he has been good to us. I mean, we should care about the things that he cares about, the things that make him mad, the things that make him angry. Now, go back to that scene. Let's just say that the wife doesn't do those things, but people come into her house, and they start talking about doing those things right in front of her husband. She thinks it's pretty funny. In fact, they start doing those things, and she's really entertained by the whole thing. Or worse... She starts cheering them on, right? She starts supporting them. She starts nudging them. She thinks, this is, this is great. This is a great idea. 
the connection is clear. When God has said that sexual immorality, his wrath is going to come down on that. It should be no entertaining matter. It should not be funny to us, and it should not be something that we get behind and we support and that we cheer on. When God has said something, that should seal the deal for us. We want to be holy in every way in this category. We want to be holy in our own actions, of course. But we want to be holy in the things we think about. We want to be holy in the things that we support. We want to be holy in the things that we want in every way. We want to ditch whatever it is that is earthly in us or that is earthly around us. And we want to run after holiness. And of course, God wants that for more than just the area of our sexual lives. Uh, Paul brings up another set of issues as the passage goes on. So let's look back at the text, Colossians 3, 7. It says, and these you too once walked when you were living in them. So you used to live this old life, now verse 8, but you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So now Paul's starting to talk about their relationships, that there should be none of these things characterizing how they treat each other. You know, getting all mad, saying things about people. There's obscene talk, which means like abusive language, saying things that hurt each other. Uh, it's just all these reactions that we would have to people when they get under our skin. We need to put it all away, it says. So let her be, refuse to be provoked. Refuse to be provoked. And you might have two very different reactions when you think of this concept, just maybe depending on how your life has been lately. One, your reaction might be like, how can I not get mad when people make me mad, right? I, I have a right. I'm going to be mad if people make me mad. Or you might be on the other end of the spectrum and be like, me? Provoked? No. I'm fine. I'm cool. I'm calm. People don't make me very mad. And if you're in that latter camp, it might just be that people haven't pressed your buttons lately because we all have buttons. Um, in fact, I would have said that I was one of those people not long ago. I would have been like, yeah, I don't, I don't get provoked much. I mean, that's, that doesn't, that's not a thing. Um, but then I have this button, <laughs> and it has been pressed over and over and over again since last year this week. <laughs> And I have learned. In fact, I put it on record. I texted a good friend before studying this passage, before having these thoughts in my mind. And so there it is. I can see it clearly. I said, can you please pray for me? I need an attitude adjustment. I, I'm frustrated, and I quote, even angry. And I look back as I'm studying this text, and I'm like, yeah, I can get angry. We can all get angry. I mean, and I'm not talking about that you know, holy, righteous anger where we're talking, you know, God's glory is being maligned, he's not being honored, and so we are righteously angry, not that kind of anger. I'm talking about the selfish anger where it's all about us, things aren't going the way we want, and then we could be getting angry about small things, we could be getting angry about big things, but whatever it is, we can all get provoked at times. And what Paul wanted the Colossians to especially keep an eye on was their provocableness with each other, with the body of Christ. He had the health of the church in mind. And we see that as he goes on in the rest of the chapter, and that's really his focus. So what he's starting with is, guys, you got to be done with this, right? With this ugliness towards each other, with the drama that's going on. And what Paul wanted for his church was certainly what God would want for ours. 
we got to be done with being able to so easily be provoked with each other. And not to say we're not going to bug each other. We are, right? We're going to get under each other's skin. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. She's a sinner. We're all sinners. We're going to bug each other. In fact, I'm sure you have people in your mind you could think of that they just rub you the wrong way. The things they say just irritate you or the way that they say it or the, the choices that they make. I mean, they don't realize that they affect other people or maybe people have really wronged you. They've truly offended you. And the Bible, of course, has different ways that we deal with these things. Some of them we overlook. Some of them we need to address and we need to deal with. But what I think this text wants us to see is regardless of what we need to do about it, the way we need to react is very specific. It's done with the old self that just reacts. We just react however we feel like, and it's the new self. We need to react the way the spirit inside of us this new creation in Christ, how he would want us to respond to each other. And of course, the Spirit is not going to prompt us to vent our frustrations about someone to our best friend. And the Spirit is not going to prompt us to be mean to the person who has been mean to us. And the Spirit is not going to prompt us to talk bad about other people, to slander other people. And the Spirit is not going to prompt us to sit in irritation about the things that people do that bug us. The Spirit is going to prompt us to have the fruits of the Spirit, right? To have love, to have patience, to pursue peace. I'm mean, thinking especially of that word love. You know how that's described in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13. There's all these descriptions of what love is, but one in particular is very much this idea of not being provoked. 1 Corinthians 13, it says that love is not irritable. And irritable could basically be the meaning of provocable. You might even have remembered that from some of the older translations. Love is not provoked. But this can be hard. It's hard when we feel justified, when it feels like someone really has wronged us, when there's good reason to be mad. Turn with me to Psalms chapter 37. Psalm 37 we see in this chapter that allowing ourselves to get all rattled up doesn't do a whole lot of good. In fact, it usually leads to evil. Psalm chapter 37, we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. The psalmist says, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. So we're talking about someone doing something so bad to you that they would be called an evildoer. And if you look up at verse 7, you see that they're even prospering in this. They're being successful in whatever evil that they're trying to accomplish. And of course, that makes us mad. And we want to fret about something like that. But what does it say? It says that that only leads to evil. So what we end up doing is we end up doing wrong when someone is doing wrong to us. It's not worth it. We need to say no to our old nature Say no to just reacting and not allowing ourselves to be provoked. Slow down. Don't fret. Wait for the Lord. He'll deal with it. He'll deal with the people that are being evil to you. You're a new self, not your old self. And if Christians everywhere took this to heart, what a difference it would make in our churches. And what a difference our churches would make as we stand out for being different than the culture around us. There's another way we ought to stand out, 
that Paul goes into. It's again in the area of how we treat each other. Let's look back at the text. Colossians 3 verse 9. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So write it down this way and then we'll unpack it. Letter C, never distort the truth. Christian brothers and sisters should not lie to each other. We should not lie to anyone. It should not be a practice that we have. But continuing the topic of how the community of believers should be, lying has no place. Let's just think about what a lie is. A lie is when we are deceiving someone, trying to get them to believe something other than the truth. So you are deceiving someone if you are saying something and you are leaving information out. That is a deception, right? You're getting, trying to get them to believe something other than the truth. If you are exaggerating to get people to believe something other than the truth, you're deceiving them. If you're saying things in just the particular way to get them to believe something other than the truth, then you are deceiving them. A half-truth is still a full lie. And our old selves are pretty natural at telling these half-truths. I mean, basically, as soon as we can talk, we start letting these things come out of our mouths. And you can picture the little guy, right? He comes up to his mom. His mom sees chocolate all over his face, and he's like, I didn't eat the cookie. You're like, okay. Clearly, that is a lie. But it's a silly lie. It's an immature lie. They start getting a little more sophisticated as they get older. You see, mom sees the chocolate on the face, and the kid points to his sister. She made me eat the cookie. And then there's this whole story that's got to be worked out, right? We're getting a little more sophisticated in it. And then the kid, maybe in elementary age, gets even more thoughtful about all this and says, well, I thought you would let me eat the cookie because you said I could have a cookie when my stuff is all done. And mom's like, that was yesterday, right, when you didn't get your stuff done. And the kid knew that, but they're thinking, how can I get out of this trouble? This more sophisticated version of lying. And by the time you get to our age, sometimes we don't even realize that we're lying anymore. We don't even recognize the lies, The problem is, for kids or for adults, lying in the moment often feels like the best choice. One commentator said it like this, truth is often inconvenient, untidy, or embarrassing, and we are constantly tempted to bend it into a less awkward shape. And isn't that the truth? When truth is inconvenient, we would much rather say whatever it is that's convenient. When truth is embarrassing, we certainly do not want to be embarrassed. We would much rather bend the truth to make ourselves look better or to get whatever it is we want. But think about that. That's that's not what Christians do, right? We don't sin in order to get what we want. We don't sin in order to make ourselves look better. That is just not what we do. So it might take some time to really think, when is it that I'm tempted to lie? Because we probably don't think of ourselves as people who go around lying all the time, but there's probably times when we are tempted to bend the truth. You think like maybe a a good friend asks you about your quiet time. That's not the time to give your answer in just this very particular way so that you don't sound like a loser, right? Just, Just say the truth, right? 
Just say, I, I'm struggling. You know, I can't, I can't seem to focus when I go to pray. Just don't pretend to be someone different than you are. Just say what is true. Or maybe you, you made a mistake. You said something you shouldn't have. Maybe you shared some information that wasn't yours to share, and maybe it's about to be found out. That's not the time to cover that up with another lie, to now say why it is that you had to share the truth, even though that's not really the reason you shared the truth. We don't want to cover up our sin with more sin. Or sometimes what we do is we say things that we have no intention of fulfilling. You know, don't say, I'll, I'll text you one of these days and we'll hang out, if you have no intention of doing that. And of course, being honest doesn't mean we need to say everything that we think, right? We don't need to say, well, I actually hope that I never hang out with you ever, right? We, we don't need to say every thought or opinion that we have, right? Or if a gal comes up and she got a, a haircut that you just don't really like, you don't need to be like, oh, your hair looks amazing, right? We don't need to lie, uh, or we, yeah, to, to be nice to someone, we don't need to lie. But then there are times, I guess, when someone's going to ask you, right? Have you ever had that, where someone asks you, you know, what do you think of my shirt? Then we're in this situation. But it's still not the time to lie, right? There's a way to be kind and still speak the truth. Oh, that's not my favorite shirt. I really like the one you wore yesterday. We should speak the truth, speak it kindly, but it does, no, it does no one any favors if we end up lying. But even if we're convinced, it's just too mean to tell the truth. We got to remember what God says. God says we should not lie. In fact, Proverbs 6, 17 says that he hates lying. He hates a lying tongue, it says. There's another reason in our text that we should put off lies. We see it in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. It says that we're being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Uh, so we're being renewed in knowledge. This is passive. So this is something that is being done to us. So God is renewing us in knowledge. So he's like he's renewing our minds. But here's this phrase, after the image of its creator. It's kind of like that phrase, she takes after. Like, she takes after her mom. He takes after his dad. So we are being made to take after our creator, to take after God. And when you think of it in terms of lying, what do we know about God when it comes to lying? Titus 1-2 says that God never lies. Versus our old selves, who used to follow the little g God of this world, the devil, and what we know about him is he is the father of lies. And we could take after him, but that's our old selves. We're done with that. We should be taking more and more after our creator, after God, who never lies. We want to be more like him, people who are trustworthy, who do not deceive. And isn't that what you want true, not only for yourself, but the people around you? I mean, you do not want, not, you do not want to wonder if the people around you are speaking the truth to you. And thankfully, that is exactly what we can expect when we are in this community of people who are all being made to be more like Christ. They are all being renewed in that same way. And really, this text, it talks often in the commentaries about how this isn't just an individual thing. How it's not just us and our new selves. It's about this new community, this new self, this new corporate self. 
Um, if you look at in verse 11, so verse 10 was talking about our new self, and then we get to verse 11, and it says here, meaning here in this new self, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Point number two, write it this way, see Christ in all his people. See Christ in all his people. There's all kinds of implications from this truth, but just thinking of the context in particular where Paul was saying, you know, don't treat each other that way. Don't be angry with each other. Don't be provocable. Don't talk bad about each other. Don't slander. Don't do all those things. Don't lie to each other. And then the chapter is going to go on to about the unity that the church should have. So in that context, thinking of this phrase, it's basically like treat each other like you all have Christ in you. Don't you realize that? She has Jesus in her. She has Jesus in her. She has Jesus in her. Jesus is the main thing, and we all have that main thing. And that should wipe away all the problems that we have, all the divisions we have, because we all have Christ in us. It doesn't matter how divided we could be over who knows what. I mean, you look at all these descriptions, and it's like they're a bunch of opposites. You got Greek and Jew you got circumcised and uncircumcised. You got slave and you got free. I mean, just think of the different lifestyles that all those people would have. And then you have words like barbarian, Scythian. These are people who would be seen as inferior. None of that matters. It's a little like being in a family and you say, look, it doesn't matter who's older, who's younger. It doesn't matter who's good at this, who's good at that. It doesn't matter who's terrible at this, who's terrible at that. We are all a family Treat each other like family. But it's not just like saying, hey, you're a pace, you're a pace, you're a pace. Come on, treat each other like paces. It's like, she's Christ. She belongs to Christ. She has Christ in her. Treat each other like you all belong to Christ. That ups it a bit. It reminds me of times when I have interacted with children from a distinguished family of sorts. I'm sure you've had that, where you had these certain people that you admire, that you respect, and then you're with their children, and you treat their children, without even realizing it, a bit different than you treat any other kid you know. Picture this. Picture you're in Washington, D.C. Picture the president that you admire the most, right? The one you respect the most, and you are touring through D.C., and you end up at a restaurant, and there are his kids. They're sitting at that restaurant, and there's maybe 15 other kids in the restaurant. But who's going to have your attention? Which children? It's going to be the children of the president. You're going to be watching them. You're going to be noticing them. They're going to have your special attention. And there may be nothing noteworthy about them at all but their association with the president makes them different. And if you were to talk to them, the kind of honor that you would give them would be different than any of the other random kids in the restaurant, even if you knew those kids. We are around the people that have Christ in them. They have an association with Christ that should make us want to honor them. They should have a special attention in our hearts because of their association with Christ. That means the sister, if she is truly your sister, she has Christ in her, even if you don't see eye to eye on her on a variety of different issues, even if she makes different decisions on the gray areas of the Christian life. If she has Christ in her, that makes it all different. 
The sister that bugs you, that gets under your skin, that says things in just a certain way, she has Christ in her. When we really take that to heart, all the petty feelings that we might have, they should really just dissipate. It should be no big deal. In fact, we should have a kind of appreciation for each other. I was thinking that these are all a bunch of God's masterpieces, right? These are all people that God is in the process of making more like himself. They all have Christ in them, a bunch of masterpieces walking around, and that is how we should think of each other. One more dimension to that, when we have Christ in us, to think that how we treat each other, whether good or bad, it's like we are treating Christ that way. And I know you know that. You think of Matthew 25, where Jesus describes the final judgment, and he commends certain Christians saying that he's pleased with them. And he says, I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. And the Christian said, when? When did I do that? When did I give Jesus a drink of water? And Jesus said, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When we're loving and serving Christ, we are loving and serving each other. It's a good reminder for us to not grow weary in that, to continue to really try and outdo one another in showing honor. And that's the life of the new self. Yeah, it's hard. It's putting to death the old life. It's a battle. But it puts us in this amazing community of God's people, the good place to be. I was talking to a friend this last weekend. She came in from out of town to come to a wedding. She came in with her husband, and she was telling me how excited she was for a really good night of sleep. She's one of those crazy people that has six children, and so she hasn't slept in a while, she was explaining. Uh, she has a one-year-old who wakes her up often, and then she has five other kids that find some reason to wake her up, and so she just she can't remember the last time she had good sleep. So she's coming in out of town, going to a hotel, looking forward to this great night of sleep with her husband. Well, of course, what is going to happen? <laughs> 3 a.m., an alarm's going to go off. Not just any alarm, the hotel alarm, right? That's loud, and it wakes everybody up, and your adrenaline gets going, and they said that it was hard for them to sleep for like an hour after that. All right, well, there goes their good night of sleep. She gets up, they do whatever they're going to do that day, and then they get ready for the wedding, and she goes to iron her husband's pants. And as she goes to iron them, she puts the iron down, and it gets stuck. And she lifts it up, and she sees that there's this sticky gunk all over the iron. And she looks at her husband's pants, and they're ruined. It's like, oh, man. So she goes down to the front desk with the iron to show them, to, you know, hope that they will help in some kind of way. She goes down there, and the guy is no help at all, right? He's actually rude to her. Through a, a big condescending smile, he says, are these new pants? And she says, no. And he feels them, and he's like, yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> not to mention, she asks, like, do you know what that was in the middle of the night? You know, like, just making sure it's not going to happen again. Should we really stay here? And he's like, no, I wasn't here. She's like, I know, but did you hear of anything? I mean, is there any reason for it? And he's like, I don't know. No one told me. She's like, oh, man, okay, we are out of here, right? We are done with this hotel. We are going somewhere else. And they did. I texted her. I asked her how it was, and she said it was great. The, she was explaining, you know, even the old hotel had an old, dirty tub, and the shower curtain was falling apart. She's like, and so this new hotel, it had a clean bathroom. 
It had an amazing bed, and the people were really nice. And I'm sure if she would have stayed there for a while, she would have found out that the hotel was not perfect, and she actually said that it did cost more money. But she said it was 100% worth it. Think of that old hotel like our old selves, right? They are 100% worth ditching. And it might seem like it costs less to live in our old self, right? It might be a bit easier, but it's no good, it's not clean, and the people interactions aren't that great. But we have our new self, like that new hotel, and it might cost more, right? It might be work putting off our old self, having that battle with ourselves, but it is going to be so good, so worth it. And the people, right? Think of the people. The people are a bunch of people that Christ is in, that God is renewing to make look more like himself. It is work, yes. It is work to put off our old self, but it is a win. The more we can say death to death what is earthly in us and instead put on our new selves. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this study in Colossians each week, just gaining new truths on how to live for you better. I thank you for allowing us to have a focus that is done with the things of this earth that are fleeting, but instead to focus on where we will one day be with you. And God, I pray that that would make a very practical difference in our lives, that we would make different choices because of that, that we would want to put to death whatever is earthly in us whether it be in the area of sexual immorality, whether it be in our interactions with each other, in the way we speak, in the truth that we tell, and especially in our appreciation for our brothers and sisters in Christ who we get to do this life with. I pray that we would have an extra special appreciation for them, just knowing that you put us in this community that you are in, each and every one of us. Lord, remind us of that as we walk around, as we see each other. I pray that we would just love each other more because of that. In Jesus' name, amen.